VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. So I'm back and Joanna's gone. I know. We just it, We're going to get it right one of these days. I know. She's not gone, gone, everybody. She just <laughs> no, no, no. is driving to Canada <laughs> on the day we're recording Quite this. Questionable decisions, but, you know, that's okay. Yeah, you know, there was there was a engagement party that they needed to be a part of because I think it's uh, Evan's best friend so it's understandable i it's ex- but uh but i'm back was i missed oh you were missed we it came up multiple times and wow. sincerely wow. we uh there were there were you know the, the dynamic without you is just it's it's like a you know it's like a we're a three ingredient <laughs> cocktail you need all three ingredients for it to really be yeah to really shine. very true it's very true speaking of so you got to tell me about your trip you know I'll, I'll tell you the boring shit i drank but but you get to the exciting stuff first okay i can do that uh, so the trip was great. I went to Italy um, with Naomi and we basically did like three sort of main areas of the country. So the first was sort of like the, t- so I'm going to say Tuscan coast slash slash the Island of Elba. We're really only on okay. the Tuscan coast in order to go to Elba and Elba was awesome. I mean, I think the, the thing about the Tuscan coast, if you've never been before, that's really cool. And you're one of these types of people, which I assume if you listen to the podcast, you are, is that you will not hear, hear English. Oh, you know, we were there like in the height of August and, you know, we're toward, I guess towards the end of August, so p- past when, you know, the Italians have their big week of summer vacations in August, mm-hmm. but still when everyone's in Italy and it's not a area very well known by English speakers, you mm-hmm. hear a little bit of German. Okay. You hear a little bit of Dutch, but mm-hmm. it's mostly Italian. And so first, just the the beach, you know, along that part of the coast with the Mediterranean is really beautiful. And like, there's a lot of really cool towns. I and mean, that's, it's the Marema, right? So it's like, if, you, yeah. if you're a wine drinker, you're like, oh, super Tuscans. Yes. But so that was cool because I'd never really, you know, you hear everyone talk about, oh, the Marema, the, Re- the Marema. Now, now I know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful coastline. And then uh, Elba is about an hour ferry ride into the Mediterranean right off the coast. And it's this just, you know, amazing island famous for where Napoleon was exiled until he was like, I'm coming back bitches. Yeah. The first Uh, time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Not great wine on Elba. (laughs) Not great wine. They basically do a lot of the varieties that are already being made in Marema. So there's a lot of Vermentino, like a lot of Vermentino um, and just not so stellar Vermentino. Okay. And then, you know, I think there's, producers trying to do Cabernet Sauvignon and Syrah and Merlot and things like that, but just again, not incredible. Um, but you know, the, the food is good. Lots of really fresh seafood. And in like in that area, I would say the best things I drank early on was I had a really good bottle of Vermentino actually, um, from, like a, a super Tuscan producer um, okay. whose now name escapes me because I drank a lot of wine. So hold on, let me, <laughs> let me get my list up so that I'm not making a, so I'm not being a jerk here. Um, so I guess in Elba, mostly cocktails, beer, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. In, I was pretty surprised that a lot of the beach resorts were trying to sell like cocktails for like $18 a cocktail, wow. which a lot of my Italian friends tell me is kind of insane. Um, mm-hmm. like how dare you almost, but you know, they, they do what they do, I guess. Um, you know, like if, if you, I guess if you can do it, do it right. Like yeah. I'm not going to get mad at you. Um, so 
Roca de Montemassi, I had a really amazing Super Tuscan from them. Um, And I also had a really nice Vermentino from them when I was on the Tuscan coast. And then uh, in Elba, actually, I had a wine from Sicily. I had the oldest Frappato I've ever had. Uh, I had a from Coase. So it was like a 2014. So I don't mean oldest like it's the the oldest vintage. It's like the oldest I'd had in terms of how long it had aged, if that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Because Frappato is not really meant to sit for that long. Uh, It was really think. It was really good. It was still very fresh. I was I was very surprised. I will say though, because it was coast, there was a massive, massive amount of sediment in the wine. Oh, well, like probably okay. when, when I got like halfway through the bottle, wow. it was just a lot of sediment, like huh. a lot. And uh, I I wonder if that just if it just throws off more. It was kind of like Naomi was asking, she's like, why is there this much in the bottle? Yeah. Like, literally, by the time we got halfway, it was just basically all sediment. Um, but so Elba, really great, really recommend it, especially if you're into like beautiful beaches and nature. It's like one of those okay. islands where you to get to the best beaches, you either have to like have someone who has a boat, rent a boat to get them to them on the island, or you have to be adventurous in meaning that you're willing to be that kind of person that gets up early in the morning and drives one of the crazy windy roads and is willing to park okay. on the side of the road where there's not an official parking spot and like maybe your car is going to get hit by another car coming around the curb but like <laughs> you're going to take that risk anyways because it's italy and that's what everyone's doing and then you're going to like scale the, uh, like a rock cliff down to the beach okay but it's cool and then okay. you, you're like on these just gorgeous beaches where it's like you and no one else the the beaches that's that cool. are easy to get to are packed right because it's sure. the height of tourist season the other thing i think is I always find so uh, interesting about Europe and we forget about here is that every beach, basically you, you don't sit on unless you've rented a chair, you know, like it's, it's all beach clubs, right? I mean, there's all the beaches have like a very small section for like the public where it's like a hundred blankets, all sort of cram with people who don't want to pay 10 euros a day to have a chair, but everyone else is paying for these chairs that these beach clubs put out on the beach because they get there super early in the morning and put them out. And then they're also bringing around beers and wine and stuff like that for you. It's just, it's okay. interesting. We just don't have that same culture, maybe in Miami, but nowhere yeah. else. I feel like, especially here, like you, you don't find that as often. So then I went sure. to, to Chianti. Okay. And uh, like the Classico area, never been before. Really awesome. Went to, you know, drove around, went to Rada, uh, had a bunch of really amazing wine, Castel de Abola. Montevertina, like just really incredible wines. That was a much more, again, not American, but very British. Hmm. Lots of Brits. Um, okay. Learned that it's a very popular area for lots of Brits and Germans to have their quote unquote summer homes. So lots of the like old homes in the hills are now owned by Brits and Germans who okay, sure. like vacation and cycle and eat and whatever. That's probably where we had one of our better meals too. And then it was off to Rome. And nice. uh, and in, I hadn't been to Rome in a long time. Rome is a really interesting city to me because it's a city that almost feels – obviously it's ancient, but yeah. also kind of like a historic artifact in a way like – I don't know, you know, for those listening, like the last time you've been to Rome compared to like Milan or places like that, but Milan definitely feels like the place where there's like a lot of activity and new businesses and younger Uh people. Like Rome really feels like, I mean, Rome exists because of what it is, not because there's like a lot of new exciting things happening there. Mm. 
Um, well, the thing about Rome that's like that I always felt was like you just feel the history bleeding through in yes, everything. It's like, everything. It's just, yeah, and it's 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 very it's very striking in a way that I agree that even other parts of of Italy or Europe, in some sense, with you know similar uh, lengths of inhabitation because of just the preeminence of Rome for so long, you just can't like help but turn a corner and be like, oh shit, there's like a you know, a historic artifact or a building to say nothing of the very, very famous landmarks. And it is, and it's like, but like I said, it's like, it's like coming through the skin of the modern city at all times in a way that's very distinct from other cities, I think. Yeah. And like, and, and what, what someone said to me, like one of my Italian friends said that I thought was really interesting was like, he views Rome as like a, a combination of our like Boston and DC with maybe a little Philly. Like mm-hmm. he's like, it's not New York, right? It's the, it's a huge city, but no one's moving there in the same way they moved to New York in that regard. They moved to Milan. Whereas you could argue, right. That another very historical city, not as ancient, obviously, but Paris both has all of that history. Plus all of the modern, you know, pushes that are happening there every yeah. single, because that's where everyone in France still goes. And I thought that was really interesting because I can't think of another, you know, ancient European capital city where it isn't also one of the more vibrant cities of that country. Hmm. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I mean, I I can't speak to the sort of socio-political nature of Italy, although I think, you know, for the last you know, a couple hundred years, it's certainly true that the northern part of Italy has generally been the more kind of industrialized, dynamic you know, kind of economic engine of the country more so than the mm-hmm. middle and, and south, which historically were. But I do think it's like, it's always as interesting to me to juxtapose, maybe Paris is an interesting juxtaposition. I think Athens is also really interesting in this yeah. regard, because, you know, Athens has a similar, an even longer history, frankly. But in Athens, I always felt like, like Rome felt like there was tension between the the present and the past. And Athens always felt to me like, Athens is a city that has already accepted that like, this is maybe our Greek listeners, please don't get angry at me. But like, like Athens feels more at ease with the fact that it's no longer the center of the world. And Rome still, maybe it's because of the Vatican, maybe it's because of just whatever. There was always that sense of like, yes, we have this history, but also we are maybe in co- in contrast to what you're saying, Adam, or at least in the eyes of the, the Romans I met, you know, we want to be this vital you know, massive, important world city, not just a historic curiosity. And Athens feels much more like that. Well, I think that that's, I think basically what you're saying, which is interesting is that's part of the tension in Rome that is they want, but they want to be a vital city because of the history. Whereas I think Athens recognizes now that it's, it will become another, a vital city again because of what's happening today. And so like, Mm. that's why in Athens now, you know, a lot of Europeans are saying it's it's kind of they're they're they feel like they see um, shades of ten to fifteen years ago Berlin, okay. where lots of young artists are moving there because it's very affordable. Okay. It's really beautiful. You can there's some of the most exciting cocktail bars in Europe are opening there. Uh, some of the most exciting restaurants in Europe are opening there because again, it's cheap, right? We've had this. This is like the the same narrative we've had in every single podcast, right? It's like you go to somewhere <laughs> yeah. that's more affordable to open something if you can't afford to open something in in one of the major cities. And I think Rome still struggles with that, right? There's there. I think th- people are pushing more boundaries in Athens. 
Um, like mm. the, the like the best restaurants in Rome are still restaurants that make really really amazing cacio e pepe and you know carbonara, and, which you definitely ate some of. Yes, lots I'm of. Sure. Yes, but like in Athens, they're now there's much more fusion and mm-hmm. th- there's pushing against like what you would consider traditional Greek food um, because I think that that realization has happened. Like we can't just say we're vital because of thousands of years ago. Like yeah, we have that history, but now there has to be something else. So it's interesting. But in, in Rome, I drank not a lot of actually Roman wine. Well, there's not a lot of Lazio. Not, not, a, lot, like not a lot of great Latian wine, right? There's some pretty uh, like acceptable, but not no one. No. no one goes there for like the the best wine in it. No, um, but I had a uh, really nice Barolo from, mm. from Giovanni Rosso, and I had, oh, so on brand. Yeah, and I had a, a really amazing wine from Gracchi, Annette, Annette Noroso from Gracchi, uh, and yeah, I mean it was a great trip. I I really enjoy Italy. I. It was nice to get away. It felt like a really – it was a, a nice break. It was this my second time to Europe since COVID, but mm-hmm. also the first time I've been to Italy in a really long time where it had nothing to do with work, which was really nice, nice uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I can confirm that uh, Adam was not on Slack. Yeah, I was not. <laughs> so so, uh, so, what about you, though? What did you drink while I was gone? <laughs> um, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I think the most exciting uh, sort of drinking experience recently was we had some friends over for dinner this past week, uh, this past weekend, I should say. And we had a couple of bottles of Chardonnay, one uh, Domaine Rougeau Saint-Romain, so uh, white burgundy from um, an old vineyard in Saint-Romain. That's like one of, you know, Saint-Romain is one of these appellations in Burgundy that's like getting popular because it doesn't have premier and grand cru vineyards. So it's generally not been considered as high quality and not as expensive, but you know, with the combination of the ever escalating price of Burgundy and climate change, some of these like places that were a little cooler, a little harder to get ripeness are now kind of making excellent wine. Um, and that was super tasty a 2017 and then a 2018 uh, from Tranche, which is a winery here in Washington from their estate vineyard, uh, which is Salilo vineyard in the Columbia gorge, Generally speaking, my my bet or pick for sort of the best vineyard for Chardonnay in the state. That was really that's beautiful. A bold, kind of fun. That's a bold. Yeah, that's okay. Well, you know, I drink a lot of wine. I know you Chardonnay. do. You do. Oh, that's I'm, like I'm, that's what I'm saying. Well that's high practiced. praise. That's high praise. I, and and I would say I am not alone in that stance. I think there's a lot of uh, producers here and uh, and wine drinkers and whatnot who would who would echo that sentiment or at least certainly put Salilo at the top of the list if they wouldn't set it apart entirely. So that was fun. Drank a lot of beer uh, over the weekend as okay. well. It's been it's been great kind of beer weather for me. It's like here in Seattle, it's been sunny and warm during the day, but kind of cooling off in the afternoon mm-hmm. and evenings. And and like I like to drink, you know, I'll drink beer year round, of course. And what I want to drink changes, but this is like a great like this is actually for me kind of peak one of the peak kind of IPA seasons. Like it's great weather for it, in my opinion. I don't mm-hmm. want it when it's super hot, as we've talked about before, but heading into fall, like very end of summer, it, it really great. And of course, as I mentioned to Joanna on the podcast not that long ago, we're about to hit fresh hop season. Just to say, here, when do we hit fresh is, hop season? Uh, I think from what I have been seeing on social media, I think some of the first beers probably about the time this podcast comes out uh, this coming week will be starting to hit shelves or uh, taps here in the area. And so next week, I will probably have a few to talk about, I'm hoping. Wow. Well, that all sounds super delicious. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I encountered on vacation that I thought would be fun to talk about is this idea of the cocktail bar outside of the United States. 
And I'm not talking about just like the regular cocktail bar. I went to an amazing cocktail bar uh, called Freni Ifrizioni in uh, like Rome. That is very much a Freni Ifrizioni. Freni, Freni, who knows? It's like a, it's like you know a high capacity cocktail bar where they're doing lots okay. and lots of different kinds of drinks, and you could tell that um, there were lots of Italians there. But mm-hmm. prior to going to that bar, I went to what is probably regarded by most people as the best bar in Italy and okay. one of the harder bars to get into in Italy. Definitely the hardest bar to get into in Rome because it's a speakeasy. Um, and it's Jerry Thomas and okay. Jerry Thomas is, you know, a, a cool bar, right? You have to have a, it's, it reminds you a lot of like milk and honey 15 years ago or sure. things like that. Right. You, you go to the door. Do you have a, you have a, you have, you become a member of the club. Are you, do you have a password? Blah, blah, blah. And when you show up, there's tons and tons and tons of people waiting there. I was really lucky that, a, a bartender, a friend of mine, Luca, who was the finalist for the Patron Perfectionists, mm-hmm. you know, the Italian finalist, was in Rome at the time because he's from Rome and like took Naomi and I there. Nice. Or else there's no way I would have gotten in. Like, sure. I would have been like, mine pair. And they'd have been like, what? So, uh, we, Kate? yeah. So, so we go in and it's very smoky, very small. And immediately all I hear is English. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows Luca. Oh, Luca, how you doing? So great to meet you. It's so great to see you, man. Blah, blah, blah. He's introducing us. We have a cocktail, and he can kind of see that we sort of felt like we were in a New York bar. Like sure. it was cool, but I didn't feel like all of a sudden I wasn't in Rome anymore. I wasn't in Italy. Mm-hmm. Like I was in a bar in lower Manhattan 10 to 15 years ago. Okay. And so he said, like, do you guys want to go check out the bar I used to work at. And that's Frini Frizioni. And so we were like, yeah, yeah, we want to go there. So we had to get in his car and like drive towards like more like the Trevestery uh, neighborhood. I'm not saying that right either. I, I, Trestevere. Trestevere neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> and, and we're leaving and Naomi asks him, she's like, hey, is it just because it's August that we heard so much English? And he was like, Naomi, no. This is all the time. This bar was created for Americans. Mm -hmm. And it had me thinking how many of these types of bars that get so many accolades, especially in Europe, have simply been created to get accolades for Americans and to be for Americans. Because he was like, you will never see Italians drink here. Italians don't drink here. Like the kinds of cocktails they're making are cocktails that are beyond the palate of Italians or don't appeal to the palate of Italians. And they, he's right. They were classic. They were of the moment cocktails we are drinking right now in the US. Right? Yeah. Like that's what they were. They There mm-hmm. was no influence of the Italian palate, culture, etc. in those drinks. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting when he said that. And, and I get that there are probably cocktail bars out there in the, you know, in the world that do exist also for the, for the people of where they're from. I think actually going back to Athens, like the clumsy is, is an example of that. It, okay. a lot of their drinks are very Greek influenced. Like they make one of their sure. cocktails is called the Greek salad. It tastes like a liquid Greek salad. Very interesting. Or like the Aegean sea is another one, but yeah. for the most part, a lot of these cocktail bars that I've gone to abroad seem like they really do exist for 
Americans and tourists. Little Red Door mm-hmm. is another example, I think, in Paris. It's a great bar, but I've never felt like I've been there with other Parisians. I've yeah. always felt like I've been there with expats and Americans. So yeah. I was curious what you think about that. Like, do you think that that is the case? And, you know, is that just naturally what's going to happen is – you know, we're just going to create like that. That is what the cocktail bar is to most other places. And most of the people don't really care about cocktail bars for tourists. Like, do they exist just so we have somewhere to drink on vacation? There is like a direct corollary to me between what you are describing, what I would say that a certain kind of classical like Michelin starred restaurant. And these have popularity the same for sort of the same reason that like you can find a McDonald's anywhere. And it's because there is a certain kind of person who travels and obviously a different kind of person who probably is going to go to these cocktail bars and to Michelin star restaurants than to McDonald's in a foreign country, but yet doesn't really like they want a certain amount of safety and comfort. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's just a thing. Um, And I bet that a lot of these bars, as you were describing, are very, very, very aware of exactly who they are catering to. And, and it's the kind of person who, you know, wants a, wants a kind of experience that they're familiar with. And again, this is maybe for some of you going to hit hard. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. And all of us are, you know, susceptible to this in some way or another. I think there are times and places, especially if you travel for work or you travel for, you know, regularly, you're on a longer trip, like some kind of comforts of home, such as they are, are appealing. And, you know, those of us who are from America have, I guess, the benefit of being, cater to wherever we go in that way, or almost anywhere we go. There's just a lot of businesses that are set up mm-hmm. to, yeah, to make Americans comfortable abroad. I wonder, though, like, you were talking about, Adam, how you don't think that the drinks in these kinds of establishments are really kind of either centered around the palates of the people yeah. in the country or in the city. And maybe don't even make use of the sort of local flavor sets, et cetera. But I wonder too, like, is there something about the way those bars are even kind of organized, the the, the idea behind them that is not appealing to a lot of people in those countries? Like, I think the idea of the classic cocktail bar, the high-end cocktail bar as we envision it here in the United States, it may, you know, it may not, it may not resonate. I mean, we've talked about before the speakeasy not resonating because there isn't a history of prohibition Mm -hmm. in other places, but even just the kind of, like, I've always felt like Europeans in particular have a very different idea of like, like they don't have cocktail culture in the same way that the United States does, at least not historically. They drink spirits and, and liqueurs differently and in different times and settings and for different, almost for different reasons. And that bridging that gap and sort of bringing European sensibilities to a, what is a very American format just might not work. Yeah. I wonder, like, I think, and I think it's interesting to have this conversation specifically through the lens of Europe, because I do believe that in places like Japan, they have a very Mm -hmm. vibrant cocktail culture, like arguably a culture that existed you know, in that between time with prohibition that kind of kept the cocktail culture alive in general, right? And the cocktail yeah. bars that are there, we know also are catering to Japanese. And, yes. you know, th- that's been said too of Singapore and places like that. But I think, especially in these, it just, it's, it always is so interesting to me when you, when you talk to people from these countries who will say, like, oh no, we don't drink cocktails. 
And then you think, okay, well then who is it for? And the only thing you can think is it's basically for, it's for us and the Brits. Yeah. Because the Brits drink a lot of cocktails too. And some of the best cocktail bars in the world are in London. And those are filled with, those are filled with Brits, right? They love cocktails too. So it's for us, the Brits, the Canadians, right? Like the Aussies, like it's for us. And I guess I think that this idea of comfort that you're talking about is really interesting because I think that is true. It's like you want to collect – you want to go to the cocktail bars in these places, but you still want them to feel familiar, right? So it's like you want to sure. say you went to like the hottest cocktail bar in Rome, but but the menu of that cocktail bar in Rome looked a lot like the cocktail bar in LA. Yeah. Right? And that I think is just very interesting and is I think a, a – you know, very much exemplifies how much culture has traveled and how, but also how small the bar community truly is because yeah. the main people influencing still in the world of cocktails is the U.S., right? It's yeah. it's all coming from the U.S. and spreading. You're not seeing a lot. Really the only two things that have been really big that haven't come from the U.S. or Britain, both, I think you could argue, came from Italy over the last decade, and that's the Negroni, which again, also though, was being sort of rediscovered by American bartenders, and the Spritz. Yeah, If we're going to be willing to consider the Spritz a legit, a serious cocktail, right? If we consider it a serious cocktail. Well, it's definitely the one of those two you see, you would see abundantly in Europe being consumed by Italians. Right, yeah. they all drank it. No yeah. one is sitting here. And then the third one, which we drank here, but it's been always considered to be much more serious, especially in Spain, is the gin and tonic. But it's never really become a serious cocktail here. Yeah. So it's really the spritz, right? And that is – like that's what basically everyone's drinking. And then they switch to wine. And then as you said, maybe they have a spirit at the end of the night. Or, but, you know, a digestif or something. Exactly. Know, yeah. But there's no – you know, it was so funny to sit there and talk to some of my friends and I'm like – you know, talk like rolling off the cocktails and like, like, oh yeah, we never drink those like espresso martinis, straight up regular martinis, daiquiris, jungle birds, yeah. bees knees. Like, they don't drink any of those cocktails that we drink super regularly. Or you could envision maybe a certain kind of you know, uh, Italian or or you know, a, a, someone from France or whatever finding a certain appeal and very once in a rare while going to one of those cocktail bars to have the same kind of you know sort of transport transporting experience that we enjoy when we go to uh you know a, a bar that specializes in tropical drinks or a bar or, or go to a, a you know a, a restaurant that has a very specific cuisine like there is a way that maybe for for some of these for a certain kind of you know kind of globally minded european that the the cocktail bar that evokes the united states uh either very intentionally or just sort of unwittingly is a place that they might go on a rare occasion for that kind of experience, but it's not a sort of weekly, you know, it's not a part of the culture. And right. I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, it's almost like to me that it's like the Italian or the European version of why uh, another conversation we've had on the podcast in the last few months, why like wine bars still struggle to land in the U S because right. we just don't have the same culture. The wine bar as a concept is really, a European concept and, and built around the way that Europeans already have been consuming wine for, you know, many, many centuries. And it just hasn't fully caught on here for whatever set of reasons. People don't ha- grow up around that kind of wine drinking environment, most of us. And similarly, I think, yeah, it's really true. It's, it's easy for us to forget because we are Americans and we are based here that like 
cocktail culture is so American in its origins yeah. that it just hasn't caught on globally, or at least in a, in places with very established drinking cultures already. That and and that is that is fine. And so if you see it in these places, it is it is going to be knowingly or not very referential to America because that's where these cocktails, that's where some of these ingredients, but certainly the idea of combining them comes from. I mean, again, we think about all these liqueurs and things that get used in in classic and modern cocktails, but like those things were not invented to be cocktail ingredients. They were invented to be consumed by themselves yeah. almost exclusively and still largely are in the place where they're from. And like, you think about something like chartreuse, right? Like not an Italian ingredient, but a French ingredient. And you think about like chartreuse was never a, like it's use in cocktails is like a, an interesting sideline, but was like right. never the history of chartreuse. And like, you see people now trying to be like, no chartreuse should be, especially the, like the more kind of rarefied expressions should never be a cocktail ingredient. You should drink it on its own. Right. And like chartreuse has a tremendous amount of complexity to it. It doesn't necessarily need to be added to a cocktail to be, you know, fully enjoyed, but it's like, that is what bartending in America has become, you know, and ha- has been for a long time of sort of combining these ingredients into not in novel ways to create something new, and that's awesome. But that isn't historically the case in Europe for the most part. You know, th- these things were not people were not. I don't think mixing together <laughs> sort of random assortments of things hoping they would taste good. That is a very American approach to drinking, frankly. Well, I think that if you talk about the American approach to drinking, which is the answer I think to all of this is that we are just a culture that for as much as we want to say, oh, we're embracing lower ABV, mindful drinking, et cetera. We are a culture along with our Australian and British friends and some Canadians, the Commonwealth people might say, even though we, we kicked out the queen, RIP. Um, oh, the king. King of the king. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. I just, I just want to say RIP. She's dead. Okay. Um, is, uh, <laughs> is is basically we drink higher proof yeah a lot and they i mean if you think about it the cocktail that came right the spritz is a low abv cocktail and they drink lower abv even with wine right and so they drink it's not that they drink less you know you look at the the consumption data of the the amounts of liters and etc there's lots of consumption but it's all wine low alcohol beer like and they drink sessionally yeah. over the course of an evening, over the course of a day, with you know Sundays with family, that kind of stuff. You can't do that with cocktails, but we as Americans damn well try to. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're, we're, we're we're all about efficiency. <laughs> we're like, you know? we're, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try, and I think that's also part of why it just hasn't caught on is because it's, it's a different kind of drinking. Well, and drinking in Europe is so closely tied to eating 100 I mean, that's the other piece too right and a cocktail bar i mean there are of course cocktail bars that have good food and all that but like by and large we don't really think of a cocktail bar as a place you go have a meal like you might have some bar snacks you might have yeah. something to eat so that you don't get completely wasted having three cocktails but like europeans again in in aggregate view drinking as a thing that is done along with food in one, you know, some, maybe you have something before you eat, you know, you have your aperitivo, maybe you have something, your nightcap after you eat, but like it is connected to food because eating in Europe is a big fucking deal Mm -hmm. and takes a long time. And you don't have a lot of the rest of your afternoon and evening to do much else with. So of course you're going to be eating while you're drinking. And and in the U S you know, like the idea for us of like, you know, yes, there are things that we still might think about consuming with food, 
But even wine, as we've talked about on the pod a bunch of times, like for a lot of people who drink wine, like they don't drink wine with their meals. They they drink wine before or after dinner or some other time. And like they have water or milk or soda or whatever with food. And like that is just that is just a fundamental difference. And I think is the other reason why the sort of cocktail bars as we see them that are intended as kind of parallels to homages to or direct you know kind of copies of American bars are going to cater to Americans yeah. and yeah, you know, maybe and sort of uh, Brits, Aussies, et cetera, who have a very different culture around drinks that is much more drinking as its own sort of activity. I agree. Very interesting. Well, if you have been to a bar outside of the US in one of these European countries that you thought was amazing, hit us up and let us know at podcast at vinepair.com. Again, I enjoyed myself at my time at Jerry Thomas very much. It just felt like being at a New York bar in Rome, which I guess is fine. A little taste of home for you. Exactly. Exactly. Got to come home a few days early. Um, (laughs) And yeah, and we will be right back in your feeds on Friday for our Friday episode. Rejoined by Joanna. See you Friday, Zach. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast, the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.